0: Well, good morning once again. My name is Marcus. Hi, if we haven't met, and I'm part of the teaching rotation here, so I'm not Mike. Uh, Mike's up in the back, keeping a very watchful eye on me. You know, it's it's one of those jokes that I, I was telling the guys this morning. It's like it's Labor Day weekend, and you get a uh, former youth pastor up here on you know to to fill in. So. Yay, right? So let's have some fun. It is kind of a Labor Day weekend. Uh, You know, lots of people barbecuing, if you can do so safely, I guess. There's still burn bands everywhere, but uh, we should probably cook up some sacred cows this morning, huh? (laughs) So uh, this morning we are going to continue our series, um, Harmony of the Gospels. If you do have uh, a copy of the book we're using, it's section 174. But we'll be in Luke 17, verses 22 through 37 when we get there. Uh, the first warning labels date back to 1938, when the U.S. Congress passed a law requiring food producers to provide a list of their ingredients. Makes sense. And manufacturers later recognized the, the need to uh, provide essential information and precautions to consumers. It was really to kind of cover themselves in case something came up. Oh, you put something you know bad in there. It's like, oh, no, here's our list of everything. So they were initially designed to enhance safety and prevent accidents by alerting the users about potential risks associated with products. But over time, the purpose and application of a warning label has undergone a significant change, um, which I believe uh, has really led to their widespread overuse. I mean, warning labels are on everything. From your coffee warning, it's hot, to, you know, don't eat this Tide Pod. Something's happened. You know, every possible purchase and every activity we could partake in comes with some kind of warning now. And we should not be surprised that when people skip over these things or ignore the safety instructions, uh, some sort of bad outcome is going to take place. You know, warning labels and biblical warnings share some similarities. While manufacturers intended to communicate some essential safety information, likewise, biblical warnings are intended to guide and protect. However, interpretations can widely vary, leading some to completely miss the intended message and how it applies to them. And for some reason, we tend to selectively listen to warnings, focusing on those that just align with our existing beliefs and desires while we just disregard others. In the context of biblical warnings, a person may only pay attention to the messages that align with their worldviews while dismissing those that challenge their beliefs or behaviors. The purpose of a warning of any kind is to prevent a negative outcome, but still people choose to ignore them. And the same is true for a biblical warning. Despite the forewarning of a potential spiritual, moral, or ethical consequence, people still disregard them and face the outcome that they were cautioned against. Which does bring us to our text. Like I said, we'll be in Luke 17. But before we go too deep into this text, there's a couple of things that I need to uh, address before we get into this passage of Scripture. So the first thing that I want you to notice as you look through it, we're going to be looking over verses 22 through 37. And some of your Bibles may not have a verse 36. Um, or it might be in there with like some uh, brackets around it or italics and everything. Um, and the reason for that, your, your English translators, um, they're telling you that that verse might not be found in some of the original manuscripts. Now, before that causes some of you a problem, I do want you to let you know that that verse is also found in the gospel of Matthew. So if there's a question at work here of whether verse uh, 1736 is biblical or not, it is because it is uh, contained in one of the other gospels. The other area of concern in this passage is that it is containing eschatological or end times themes meaning it deals with teachings and prophecies about the end times or the second coming of Jesus. And we're talking about the final judgment as well. And different Christian traditions and scholars offer various interpretations of this passage. And we're not going to be covering all the different interpretations that are out there. Here we believe in the common dispensational interpretation, which means... um, it's closely associated with a premillennialist view, and it divides history into distinct dispensations of periods of God dealing with humanity. So we, you know, we're in the church age now. Um, so, when using that lens, uh, Luke 17:22 through 37 is describing events leading up to and during the great tribulation which is then followed by Christ's visible return to establish a literal millennium of kingdom um, rule on earth. Okay, now that all that is out of the way, let's let's get into the passage. So if you have been following um, along with our series, it is section 174, like I said, and we're picking up right from last week. So last week, the Pharisees had questioned Jesus as to when the kingdom of God was coming. And Jesus' answer was that the kingdom of God was not coming in the manner that the Pharisees were seeking. The kingdom would not come with spectacle or splendor. There would be no great and magnificent uh, leader who would claim his throne and defeat the Romans. Rather, the kingdom would come silently and unseen. In fact, Jesus says that the kingdom had already begun. Right under the Pharisees' noses, God was ruling in the hearts of some people and the king himself was standing among them. But the Pharisees were blind to this fact. And so as Jesus, Jesus so often does, immediately after speaking to the Pharisees, we see him speak with his disciples about the lessons and warnings that the Pharisees had missed. So that's where we're going to begin is at that point. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would meet with us now and that you would speak to us through your word as we unpack this text this morning. There is um, often when you look at a passage like this, there's almost more questions than there are answers. But Lord, we trust you. We love you. We just pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would just clear our minds and that we would be receptive to what you have for us. We just give this time over to you in Jesus name. Amen. So picking it up in Luke 17, verse 22, we would read, and he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other. So will the son of man be in his day. You know, people have been trying to predict when Jesus is going to return for about as long as the church has been around. And so far they've all been wrong. (laughs) <laughs> Have you ever met a person that was consumed by end times predictions? All right, these are the guys that are tracking every event they believe because everything has some sort of connotation that links it to uh, end times in an, you know, concerning Israel. They're the ones that are putting newspaper clippings into, into binders and tracking every world event because they believe that they can figure this formula out and they can predict God's timing if you just follow the breadcrumbs. Well, Jesus tells us, he was warning us not to follow after these types of people who are going to try and deceive us. He tells us, do not go out or follow them. So church, do not follow or allow yourselves to get sucked into these type of prophecy predictions because Jesus says his second coming is an event that everyone will see and it'll be unmistakable. You won't miss it. What happens, when it happens, everyone on planet Earth will know. He says it'll be as evident as someone looking up to the sky when lightning is flashing. And sadly, what often happens with these end times chasers is that they can talk, about, um, talk for hours about who they believe the Antichrist is. But if you ask them to explain God's grace, the need for repentance, or how to live while we wait for Jesus, they don't really have much to say about that. Jesus doesn't want us to get off mission by seeking out some prediction on the supposed details of this, because it's only going to lead to confusion and conflict. The reality of the second coming is that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, everyone's going to know. We need to remember that when Jesus comes back, it will be unmistakable. Revelation 1, 7 tells us, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wait, will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. We need to though, watch for the signs of the times. You know, just because we say, um, we don't need to be tracking every detail. We don't need to be putting binders together. That does not mean we, we shouldn't be vigilant. It's really completely on the contrary of that. We do need to be mindful of what's taking place in our world so that we are ready for his return. Jesus also understands that his followers are going to endure hardships in life. He says as much in John fifteen twenty. if they persecute me, they will persecute you. So it's no wonder that he says that in those days, they will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and will not see it. Now, the Greek word here for desire um, that's used is epithymio. Other Bible translations use, um, instead they they insert long here or longing for. And there's nothing wrong with either English word here. But what Luke is trying to convey is this type of desires that the apostles are going to have to see Jesus again. And it's the type of desire that when you want something so bad that it hurts. And it's used um, in two other references I pulled up for us in Luke 15 uh, verses 16 through 17. You might um, be familiar with this story. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. And again, Revelation 9, 6. And in those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. And they will long to die, but death will flee from them. Jesus is clearly warning the disciples that if they will face it, Uh, times when they will inwardly long to see Jesus return in power and glory, but they will have to wait because it's not the appointed time for him to return. And let's be honest, who here hasn't longed for Jesus to come back and straighten out our messed up world? Look at the problems in our world, right? We have war, violence, greed, crime, corruption, immorality, fill in the blank. It's all there. Listen to this description I found um, of this person's time and try to guess when it was written. It is a gloomy moment in the history of our country. Not in the lifetime of most men has there been so much grave and deep apprehension. Never has the future seemed so incalculable as at this time. The domestic economic situation is in chaos. Our dollar is weak throughout the world. Prices are so high as to be utterly impossible. The political cauldron seethes and bubbles with uncertainty. Russia hangs, as usual, like a cloud, dark and silent upon the horizon. It is a solemn moment. Of our troubles, no man can see the end. This quote is from Harper's Magazine, October 10th, 1847. You know, if you change some of the wording around, it would sound like it was written yesterday. It doesn't seem like much has changed since then. The world is still dark and broken, and it's not getting better. You know, as followers of Jesus, we need to accept the fact that we do not know when Jesus will return, but instead we need to rejoice and give thanks to his word that says he's coming back. So to recap, Jesus doesn't want us being fixated on figuring out when he's going to return, but he does want us to watch for the signs of the time. And through the rest of our passage today, Jesus is going to start revealing to us some of the things that are going to happen before his return. So verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, this would have been incredibly difficult for the disciples to hear. If Jesus was truly the the Messiah as they believed him to be, why would he have to suffer before bringing his kingdom? And what of his rejection? What kind of king would have to suffer and be rejected in order to get his crown? Well, that doesn't make sense, does it? And the Pharisees of Jesus' day were certainly not looking for a king that would suffer or lead them to suffer as well. They wanted a king who would deliver them from the Romans, not keep them underneath their rule. But Jesus' statement here is not happenstance. This is a deliberate thing that he said. The prophet Isaiah speaks about the suffering servant who turns out to be none other than the Redeemer, the Messiah. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus is pointing out to his disciples that in order for him to establish the type of kingdom that they were expecting he would first have to suffer alone on a cross. And that was part of God's plan from the very beginning. You know, the principle of the uh, innocent dying for the guilty was established in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve received garments of animal skins to cover their shame. Right? The innocent animals died to cover their shame. Later, this principle was set in Mosaic law. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Jesus had to suffer because suffering is part of sacrifice and Jesus was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His physical torture was part of the payment required for our sins. We are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The cross had to come before the return of Christ. That might seem like a silly point to make, but understanding it is deeply important. Um, this is the point of the cross here in the text. It's only through suffering will God's plan be fully accomplished in Jesus' life. It's through suffering that joy and glory can come. Hebrews 12:2. looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see the contrast here in our text? The disciples were looking ahead to God's end game. And then Jesus brings them back to the moment by saying, the first thing that has to happen is my death. Don't get ahead of God's divine plan. Suffering has to come before glory. So this should be huge news for us today as well. Don't be so caught up with your end time system that you neglect the cross and the gospel. And as we continue to read, we're going to see that for the ones who do not understand the cross and the gospel, the appearance of Jesus is going to be a very bad day. Let's continue. Luke seventeen twenty six through 32. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the son of man is revealed on that day, Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Within this section, Jesus' warning that when world conditions match those during the time of Noah and Lot, we should start paying attention because God's judgment will happen soon. And there were two important conditions for us to see that were uh, present during the days of Noah and Lot. First, during the time of Noah and Lot, there was extreme immorality and wickedness. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. And then in Genesis 19, we read, Perverted sexual behavior was widespread in Sodom and Gomorrah. When the two angels who looked like men visited Lot's house to warn his family to leave, the homosexual men of the city wanted to rape them, speaking of the two angels. Genesis 19.5, we read, They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went out and begged the men in the city not to do this wicked thing. And then they get angry at Lot and shout, who do you think you are? How dare you say what we do is evil? It's our right to act this way if we want. You're an intolerant religious fanatic. And then they tried to rape Lot and the angels had to supernaturally intervene and save him. So the first condition was extreme wickedness. But there's still a second condition at work. While they were surrounded by immorality and wickedness, the people lived their lives as if nothing was wrong. They accepted this kind of behavior as normal. So instead of the public being alarmed or outraged at all of the wickedness, Jesus said they kept on eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Even if they didn't participate in it, um, they condoned it by acting as if nothing was wrong. Doesn't that sound awfully like America today? We're living in a time when all sorts of unbiblical behavior is gaining national acceptance. If you even suggest it as perverted, you're labeled an intolerant hate monger. You know, America leads the world in exporting pornography. We continue to kill unborn babies by the millions. A large majority of our country now views abortion as if it was a protected freedom, up there with the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, And the whole time, most of us aren't alarmed or outraged. We just try to forget about it, so we keep on eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Jesus' point here for us, though, is that during the days when Noah and his family waited for the flood, that generation of people who heard his warnings and preached continued living their lives with no concern at all. They were going about their normal everyday lives without giving a single thought to the fact of what Noah was warning them about was coming soon. God sends a flood. It destroys all those who are not his people. All wicked unbelievers were destroyed that day. Only those who took refuge in the ark were saved. The unbelievers in Noah's day loved the world more than they loved God. They cared more more about their earthly life than they did their souls. And the same point is made using the story of those in Lot's day, the people of Sodom were going about their daily lives, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. They loved the world more than they loved God. They died in judgment too, only not with a flood, but this time of fire. And even Lot's wife, who came so close to escaping the judgment, had difficulty in letting go of the world. Her heart was fixed, not on the things of God, but the things of the world. And so she met a similar fate as all did in that wicked city. So please understand what Jesus is saying to us here. We must love him and the reality of heaven over all things. Don't have your arms wrapped around the things of this world. And if you're on the roof, when Jesus returns, don't try to go down and get your stuff. (laughs) Let's read the final part of Jesus's warning in our text. Uh, starting in verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So here Jesus is talking about those who understand the truth of who he is and the truth of their situation. But even still, they will not give up their sinful way of life and repent. And this is exactly a situation that we read about in the Old Testament um, of Israel and the serpents. In Numbers, we read about Israel complaining during their journey in the wilderness. And as a consequence of their complaints, God sends venomous snakes uh, among them, causing many to be bitten and fall ill. The people realize their mistake. They ask Moses to intercede on their behalf. and In response, God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it up on a stick. And all those people who looked at the serpent on the stick will be healed. The craziest part about that story is that there were some that chose not to. All you got to do is look at the snake on a stick and you'll be fine. And they said, "Nah, I'm good. I'm going to ride this one out. And they wrote it out all right. And what's even more crazy, during the dark days at the end of the tribulation, there are going to be people who refuse to repent. Jesus warning us that if your life's greatest goal is to preserve your way of life by refusing to repent and walk away from your sin, then you will lose everything. Why? Because you will be unwilling to let go of those things in order to embrace Christ. You see, you can't do both. You can't live for this world and also live for Christ. You can't seek first what this world offers and also seek first his kingdom and have righteousness. You can't live as if this life is all there is and then expect to gain entry into heaven. You have to choose. Verse 34, I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus is describing two kinds of people here. Those who were taken and those who are left. In each case, whether sleeping or awake, one is going to be taken, the other left. And that separation is going to happen over the whole world. If you looked at that text, there's going to be daylight and a nighttime, and people are taken at the same time. The verb taken here in the Greek um, does not mean um, taken to heaven, but rather taken away in judgment. The person left is a believer who enters into the kingdom. Look at Noah and his family, how they were left to enjoy a new beginning where the whole population of the earth was taken away. And in spite of their sins, Lot and his daughters were left while the people in Sodom and Gomorrah were taken when fire and brimstone destroyed the cities. Jesus' examples here, dealing with people who perhaps look very similar and yet one has cared more for the things of Christ and the other for the things of the world. One is like Noah and Lot, and the other is like the people who disregarded the message to be saved. Now, this distinction between the two kinds of people that Jesus had just been given, this is either very, very good news or it's very, very bad news. You know, it's good news if you're among the few who belong to Christ. But this should serve as terrible news if you're among the many who make the same mistake uh, that Lot's wife made of loving the world. Of loving the things in the world and the thinking that they're just fine with God. And our passage ends with a rather odd statement by Jesus. The disciples ask Jesus, Where, Lord? Not to ask where are people going to be taken to, but rather, where is all this going to take place? And Jesus responds, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, in Scripture, a gathering of vultures is an indicator of God's judgment for rebellion. Um, in Deuteronomy, when, um, blessings and curses are being given to Israel, God warns them, your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. So vultures are a sign of, uh, a judgment of great shame. And under this curse, the Israelites would have no dignity in their death. They would have no one to bury them. And it symbolizes the height of defeat, disgrace, and personal insignificance. When there are no defenders left to keep the scavengers from tearing a body apart, just as they would a dead animal. So when Jesus comes back, those who will be taken will fall to this judgment. We're not talking about removing a body, but their life is going to be gone. The bodies will remain. The simple answer to the question of of where is, you know where this is going to take place by where the birds are feasting. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be noticeable at all. So what can we package for you guys in all of this? You know, when we examine passages of scripture like Luke 17, it's very easy to fall into the trap of believing that we have everything figured out. And the reality of this is that we've really only scratched the surface of some end times theology here. There's not enough time in a day or a week to cover every question that comes up from reading a text like this. But there is just one thing from this passage that I I really want us to take to heart. It's easier to choose between heaven and hell than it is to choose between heaven and earth. I'm going to repeat that again. It's easier to choose heaven over hell. It's hard to choose heaven over earth. In verse 32, we're told to remember Lot's wife. As the angels warned Lot and his family of the impending destruction of the city, they were instructed not to look back. However, Lot's wife was unable to let go of the world she knew. She disobeyed and looked back, and in that moment she became a pillar of salt. You know, Lot's wife, like many of us, found it incredibly difficult to let go of the comforts and familiarity of her earthly life. Instead of being obedient to God's warning, she chose to hold on to the world she knew, even if it meant her own spiritual downfall. There's an inner struggle that we all face, and it's a battle between our immediate desires and our long-term spiritual values. It's our flesh versus the Holy Spirit. The flesh is our sinful human nature that is inclined towards selfishness and worldly desires and disobedience to God's will. But the Holy Spirit, which dwells in the heart of those that place their faith in Jesus, is the part of them that seeks to align with God's will, to live a righteous life and follow the teachings of Jesus. It's the aspect of our being that desires to grow in faith and love. You know, Paul writes about this struggle in Romans chapter 7, where he says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So how are we supposed to overcome this? In our world full of distractions and instant gratification, what are we to do? What's what's going on in the first place? Well, we can start by avoiding cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in uh, in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, and he writes about this subject in depth. It's a great book. I recommend it to everybody that I can. But cheap grace is the idea that some people may approach their faith with a casual attitude, believing that God's forgiveness and salvation are easily obtained without requiring any real commitment or repentance or transformation of your life. It suggests that a person may take God's grace for granted and use it as a license to continue in sinful behaviors without genuine remorse or change. So we have to avoid that. We do that by embracing what Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. Costly grace, in his view, is the true understanding of God's grace, which comes at a significant spiritual and moral cost. It involves acknowledging one's sinfulness, repenting, and making sincere commitment to follow Christ's teachings. Costly grace requires a transformation of the individual's life and a willingness to live in obedience to God's will, even when it involves sacrifice and challenge. And we do that by living authentically. Living out costly grace means living as a follower of Christ. It involves not only proclaiming your faith, but demonstrating it through your actions and attitudes and your relationships. People should be able to see a genuine commitment to Christ in the way that you live out your life. You also want to engage in discipleships. And it's here I want to plug our life groups to you guys. Discipleship is a key aspect of costly grace. Engage in intentional discipleship by investing time in biblical study and prayer and mentoring relationships. And this is going to deepen your understanding of Christ's teachings and help you grow as a disciple who actively reflects on his love and truth. Life change happens in small groups, guys. If you really want to invest in your relationship with Jesus, you do so by, as a group, investing in each other, carrying one another's burdens. So if you are on the fence about uh, joining a life group, Let me push you over it first. Get on the side of life group, okay? And then seek out one of our elders. Um, There's going to be information at the tables out front. In the next couple of weeks, they're going to be kicking off. But get into one of these. Find a way to make it happen. Uh, And lastly, um, we need to reject complacency. Cheap grace can lead to complacency. Where believers become passive and indifferent in their faith. Costly grace challenges this by urging believers to reject it and actively participating in their spiritual growth. We're not okay. We're not okay when we're left to our own devices. We're not meant to be isolated and alone as believers. Wherever two or more are gathered, there I will be also. Iron sharpens iron. I could keep going down this list, but I'm not going to. But you get the point reject complacency, don't settle for the status quo, become active in your faith, and remember Lot's wife. Let her life be a warning that leads us to choose heaven over earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much again for, for this time that we could gather hearing from your word. And Father, I just pray for each one in this room that they would be um, seeking out ways that um, they can live an extraordinary life for you. God, that we would be motivated to, to do something. God, that we would be motivated to change, and if there is um, sin in our lives, that it would be rooted out, that the light of your uh, truth would shine upon that. And God, for each one of us, I just pray as we spend the next few moments just worshiping together, that we would just open up our hearts and minds to, to what it is that you're speaking to us in this moment. And Father, um, I, do, I do pray for just a, just a moment of time today to, to rest and to, to just find what it is that you're speaking into our hearts. We just give this time back over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has given us this warning today. If you have your arms wrapped around the world instead of him, you will end up like the world. So remember that his coming cannot be missed. It will be unmistakable. Don't allow yourself to get caught up in all the end time systems um, or else you may lose sight of the cross and the gospel. He's warning us because in his mercy, he's calling all men and women boys and girls to embrace him and love him more than they love the things of this world. So let go, let God embrace Jesus, live for his glory. And when he comes again, we'll all be ready. Amen. Mayus Road Church, you're sent.